Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Chitheads podcast. My guest today is Richard Katz. After receiving his PhD in clinical psychology from Harvard, Richard Katz began a journey beyond the confines of psychology into a world of experiences nourished by indigenous knowledge and its emphasis on spirituality. He traveled in 1968 to the Kalahari Desert to work with the Juntwasi, indigenous peoples who, as primarily hunter-gatherers, offer a view into the fundamental evolutionary roots of our human behavior. He experienced how the spiritually infused healing energy expanded and became renewable. So, in a synergistic manner, the healing of one became the healing of all. Over the past 55 years, Katz has lived and worked with other indigenous healers, experiencing that same spiritually nourished healing energy pervading daily life. They asked him to bring their teachings to Western healthcare so as to make it more appreciative of diversity, more committed to social justice, and more respectful of the importance of community and spirituality in health and healing. Katz stresses that while indigenous knowledge is always offered freely, it cannot be sold on a free-for-service basis. There is a cost. That knowledge has been nurtured by indigenous peoples through centuries of colonization and oppression. To share in that knowledge, we must commit ourselves to a path of service, not ego enhancement or power, and give back to those who have been its guardians. Katz's latest book, Indigenous Healing Psychology, Honoring the Wisdom of the First Peoples, which we're going to speak a little bit about today, is a culmination of his work. He is also presently a professor emeritus at the First Nations University of Canada. So hello, Richard. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so happy to be here, Jacob. I'm quite excited to um, hear some of your questions. <laughs> Well, I'm very excited to ask them. I've, you know, really been enjoying reading through your book, Indigenous Healing Psychology, Honoring the Wisdom of the First Peoples, which I have right here in my hands. It's uh, really quite a beautiful book and really extensive in equal parts shares your own personal story and how that has contributed to the research uh, Indigenous psychological healing work that you do, while also kind of critiquing some of our own kind of cultural assumptions and the ways in which we can perhaps misappropriate these teachings and these practices um, without a sufficient understanding of both our own uh, socio-historical context and also uh, those of alternative worldviews. So before we dive into all that juicy stuff, I just wanted to talk a little bit first about your own story and, and especially kind of the the story about Harvard and your educational experience there that really helped to start to situate you in a way um, that inspired this work that you do in indigenous healing. Well, thank you, Jacob. I, I have to say something first, which is to uh, give you my uh, sincere gratitude for not only inviting me, but offering to talk with um, you having done work beforehand. I've done a number of podcasts, and as you know, many people who do them don't even read the book that they're talking about, have no idea who they're talking to, and what they do, hey, Jacob, they ask you to send a list of questions. <laughs> so I have to just compliment you and, and express my appreciation for the fact that you care enough to have read the book to not ask me the questions, but come 
with your own questions. So thank you for that. That's really a pleasure. Eh? Yeah, I appreciate you uh, saying that, Richard. Um, and um, uh, it's always a surprise to me that that is the way that many other oh, yeah. podcasts are conducted. 90% of the people I've done podcasts, that's how they do it. Wow. So, uh, yeah, so the story is uh, is kind of an interesting one. Uh, if you think of like uh, how, how lives unfold. Eh? Um, mm-hmm. And a good friend of mine, eh, Jacob, who's practices Tai Chi and, and um, other kind of disciplines, uh, asked me, we've known each other for 50 years, kind of innocently, what is your practice? <laughs> and um, it kind of befuddles me because there is no way that I can identify my practice with a word like a particular meditation, a particular uh, approach. And I said to him, my practice has been trying to be open to what happens in my life, often unexpectedly, and to embrace it and to try to understand it and try to learn from it. And that, that's been the story because I started out, um, well, of course, we all start out, we don't know exactly how, but I, I did have some questions even when I was young. <laughs> and I did have some experiences when I was young. I, I remember, and I hope that this is appropriate to your podcast. If it's not, I'll say it anyway, because you want my story. But I remember as a young one flying around, flying, you know, we we have experience. The thing is that uh, we have to remember that probably a lot of kids have that experience Mm -hmm. of flying, you know, around my house and through the doorways. Uh, We don't hear about it. They don't talk about it. But I think it's probably pretty common. Mm. But then I proceeded to have a fairly conventional um, life in terms of education, uh, but always feeling there was something missing, huh? something inside that was empty. And I went to uh, Yale and then I went to Harvard. You know, it was a kind of a a life that would kind of say, hey, aren't you satisfied? Look at all you've achieved and so forth. But if there's something inside that's missing, if there's a an empty space inside, nothing that you achieve can really mean very much. Huh? Yeah. And uh, when I was at Harvard getting my degree in clinical psychology, by some chance, I met up with two guys, Tim Leary and, and Dick Alpert, uh, Ram Das. Mm. Uh, this was my graduate school. So we took psychedelics and, and you know, and, and anybody that has that experience, you, you know, it's like, it's not a mystery. You see and feel things that are beyond the ordinary. And things began to kind of click. Not that psychedelics was a path, but I see psychedelics as opening the door, confirming, confirming. Huh? And I think we have all these, you know, these experiences come in so many different ways. You know, it can be just walking out the door and all of a sudden you see the sun and you realize the sun is speaking to you, is is warming you. And there's a reason for the sun and and... and in any case, that was my kind of like uh, the jolt. Hmm? Mm-hmm. And then actually right after that experience, I met somebody who said, basically, we have a project going on in the Kalahari to look at um, hunter-gatherers. And they, he said to me, these were his words, they do a healing and they don't use drugs. That appealed mm-hmm. to me. Because <laughs> yeah. I was looking for something uh, and I had done meditation, I'd done yoga, and I still do, but this is not my my primary path. So it interested me deeply. 
And I went there in 1968 and saw a healing community in which they work with spiritual energy called Ngum, which they can hold, which they can see, which the beautiful thing about it, eh, Jacob, is it's shared throughout the community. Mm. That struck me as the key because, uh, like, for example, I, I was involved for quite a while with the Gurdjieff movement. We never talked about sharing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It was inward looking and inward. almost like hoarding. Eh? And here was a group of people that had this powerful spiritual energy that animated the community. It's all over in the environment to be shared, never to be hoarded. That to me was the key. And that set the path, eh, Jacob, for the next 50 years plus where I still am. So that's interesting. And I remember uh, reading that in your book and kind of wanting to um, draw some attention to that is this idea that spiritual transformation can't really be ultimately possible without um, the aspect of community involved. And, um, and of course, I think that's an important point because as you were just alluding to and mentioning, I think that those contemplative practices or those approaches to alternative wisdom that are most popular in the West tend to be ones that are, that extend from or resonate with our individualistic tendencies, right? Which is to kind of do my own thing. And in a certain way, it can actually, it, if we harness them incorrectly, perhaps, or in an unskillful way, actually encourage and um, augment our experiences of isolation from each other and, and, and sense of, you know, my autonomy being separate from your autonomy and so on. So can you talk a little bit about how the experience of community in your, in, in your, um, in your work has been so crucial? What does it mean to say that community is an important or an irreplaceable component of spiritual transformation. I think it's a really important point, Jacob, because like I have been involved with disciplines that stress uh, isolation and, uh, you know, retreats, which of course are critically important, yeah. but that's not the path. They always talk about the instrument toward understanding as opposed to being the thing itself. So the retreats like an instrument towards you know? But uh, just to give you an example, uh, I spent a lot of time uh, at a reservation called Rosebud Reservation in uh, South Dakota, Lakota, um, <clears throat> and uh, did a, uh, a vision quest, Hambalachian. Now, I'm not going to talk about it because it's one of the teachings that I've gotten from working with uh, indigenous health, uh, healers and elders is these experiences really are your own life story. You can share them, but but they're not meant to be, um, how would you say, publicly announced. This is what I did. So, so yeah. rather than talking about the actual uh, vision quest itself, let me talk about the, the context in which it occurred. So I was, um, I approach a healer, his name is Joe Eagle Elk, and I talk about him in that book. Uh, the book is all the, the teachings that I've received, and Joe Eagle Elk was one of the, the you know, very important influences. So, and he puts me up on the hill, walks me up there, takes me up there. And another of his helpers helped me prepare because you have to prepare for, uh, you know, uh, different procedures again, without going into the detail of what happens. And then you, he brings me back down. Now, where does he bring me? 
He brings me to a group setting inside a house with probably about 15 people there. I knew maybe two of them or three of them. Who are these people? <laughs> they were the people that were praying for me when I was up on the hill. Wow. They were the people who came to see who is this guy? I had never met them. Who is this guy? And I come down from the hill. And the first thing that happens is Joe asks, what did I see in here? And I, I tell him. And Joe interprets it, telling me this is what you have to do in the next steps of your life relating to community. He talked about healing work and my teaching. And then a very interesting happen, thing happens. You prepare gifts when you, come, when you come back down to give to the people who support you. Mm. And I had the whole thing planned out, good Western way. Very special gift for Joe and another special gift for the other person that helped me. And then a lot of other items. We're in a circle. And I lean over to Joe and I say, Joe, how do I give these gifts out? When do I give them out? Thinking, oh, I'm gonna, he's going to be so happy with the gift I gave him, the pride, you know. Mm -hmm. And Joe says, well, anytime you want, just, well, how? Just pass them around to your left, always clockwise. I passed them around to my left. And to my left was a person, I had no idea who he was. What did he do? He took Joe's gift. <laughs> you see? And it went around. The teaching was powerful. The teaching was that I was trying to set up a, a hierarchy. Joe was helping. No, Joe yeah. was part of a community. And that community was praying for my mm. well-being. And you show your appreciation to the community rather than singling out people. Mm. So it's a very powerful teaching. And at the healing dance in the Kalahari, we have a tendency, I, I have a tendency, I'm not sure about you, Jacob, but I'm always looking for, I'm, I'm getting better at it. Something that's pure. I want to work with teachers who are pure. Lineage is clear. The most powerful, you know, this is nonsense. I'm seeing now it's nonsense. No one's pure. That's my feeling. Eh? And so um, <clears throat> at the healing dance, everybody is equal. If anyone is trying to talk about how powerful their medicine is, they're immediately cut down. And those who tried to establish the power of their healing, this is a healing energy called NUM, you can't contain it. It's all over the place. And as soon as the healing dance starts, the NUM starts to circulate. So it's impossible to contain, yet people still try. That's a powerful teaching, the spiritual energy that we try to marshal and contain to show how powerful we are is uncontainable. No one owns it. It, it just, it's in the air. See? Yeah. So that was another part of it. But at the healing dance, the whole community comes. And the interesting thing, hey, Jacob, what do they do? It's a healing dance, right? Healing ceremony. What do they do? Visit. <laughs> Visit. Joke. Great to see you because you're spending the whole night together. Mm -hmm. Healing is part of the community network of bonding people. And when you live in a small community, it's very important to have 
everything kind of like well-oiled. I mean, there's conflict and there's disagreements, but you need that connection and the healing energy, the spiritual is what connects and makes community. Not because people love each other, but they are all orienting towards a higher power. This is kind of where community comes in. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I appreciate you mentioning the inclusion of, you know, jokes and, and I'm imagining laughter as a part of this. And, you know, so many kind of spiritual contexts, when we think about them, it's often very serious and sort of somber. There's, you know, we have serious spiritual work to do and, and there's no time for jokes and, and that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, I love that. And that's, that's a beautiful, um, uh, those are beautiful stories about your experiences in community. So, you know, as a lot of what you're, we're talking about now, um, throughout the book, you lay out the foundations for first by um, uh, kind of deconstructing our own um, psychological uh, assumptions. We have this, you know, term, let's call it capital P psychology, that is essentially a Western um, approach that we've then, in some sense, universalized. And you go into great detail about this. And um, what's particularly interesting, I think, as well, is that you were shaped and trained at Harvard during the reign of, of behavioral psychology, which is, um, you know, couldn't be any further away from being inclusive of a spiritual aspect of things. So uh, for those who are kind of unfamiliar with the politics kind of around this, can you talk a little bit about how we universalize our psych our psychological tradition and what what behavioral psychology is and how it plays into that? Yeah, that's really good, Jacob. I'm glad you asked that because I think probably most people who are connecting today with psychology, particularly if it's in a therapeutic context or trying to seek help, will encounter what's called CBT, Cognitive Behavioral yeah. Therapy. Why is this one approach uh, so important, so powerful? And the reason is quite simple. Um, psychology, which started out, you know, uh, let me just also say that psychology is not a Western invention. The healers and the um, elders that I worked with, I considered them to be our first psychologists. Right. Yeah. They were clearly involved with um, issues of community, issues of health, issues of healing, issues of uh, how to share, how to survive and so forth. So they were our first psychologists. But come to a Western concept of psychology and if you pick up any psychology textbook, it started out with a guy named um, Freud. Well, Freud and 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 also Wundt. Wundt, right. very important. Mm -hmm. First, laboratory experimental approach, and then Freud comes along, and so forth. Freud comes along with some very powerful teachings. You know, again from a Western point of view, and people feel, well, this is really interesting, but it takes so long, and we're not sure it works. Can we do something quicker? Very Western thing. <laughs> yeah, Can we do something Quick, quicker. Fixed prescription. Yeah. CBT. Skinner comes, and Skinner was there when I was at Harvard. Skinner did some very interesting things, like for example, he went into the back. He not he, but his students went into the back wards in Boston area where people were almost catatonic. No, nothing was working. 
-hmm. and he started doing some cognitive behavioral, some conditioning, what he would do would be when you sat next to one of these people who may have been, let's say, catatonic, and they just maybe even did a little look towards you, they were rewarded. And they kind of successively, the more they looked, the more reward, and finally maybe even talking. So he was able to move them out of the, you know what the rewards were? M&Ms. <laughs> M&Ms. So here you have cognitive behavioral therapy. The, the key part is, can we focus on what we can see, what we can touch, what we can describe, what we can measure, what we can quantify, and can we do it quickly? <laughs> Please, can we? And can we do it logically? And we can do it in a way that we can measure. Yes, it worked or it didn't work. We want something definitive, clear, measurable, weighable, observable, and quick. Whether it solves the deep problem or not is irrelevant. Mm -hmm. So psychology is almost like a CBT, you know, um, profession. I mean, obviously there are other ways of doing it, but that's a dominant way. And the criteria are all measurable, weighable, efficient, effective, and everything that is from an indigenous point of view of health and healing, in which, for example, Western psychology really wants to know, does it work? From an indigenous point of view, you can't ask that question. You know why? Because health and healing is balance. Mm. The key to balance is imbalance. As soon as you're feeling, and, and you, you see this all over the world, they, the healers I've worked with, they say, as soon as you feel that you've got it, that's the exact point when it leaves. Mm. When you're lost, as soon as you feel I've got it, you know how sometimes when we meditate, wow, as soon as you admire what you've just exactly. met, it's gone. So the notion of balance as the key to what means healing destroys the whole approach to conventional Western psychology. It cannot be measured because as soon as you try to measure it, it changes. See, the other thing about Western, mainstream Western sector, it wants things to stop. And if they don't stop, we will stop it, even though it continues on. If you talk about balance, you know, you think of the, the, the seesaw. Hey, we're in balance. Then all of a sudden someone breathes, it, out of balance. So that's the key of health is balance. So you can't measure it. When do you, when do you measure it? You see? And then also um, the, the notion of healing from an indigenous point of view, it's not patient and healer. It's the whole context of community. What do you measure? So Western psychology has a set of assumptions that make for very good discussion of we did this, we did that, this was the results, this was you know success or failure, but misses totally the point of what healing is about. And clearly, from a mainstream Western perspective, spirituality is not for psychology. It's for religion or spiritual studies or Buddhist, you know, it's not for psychology. But what we learn from indigenous approaches is that spirituality is very ordinary. Yeah. The word extraordinary is a Western word. 
It's not extraordinary. It's ordinary. This morning, hey, Jacob, was when I was thinking about our podcast, I was looking out my window. We, I have a, an elm tree right outside the window. And uh, I live in a, a little, it's not a big city. It's, you know, so they did, but they do trim the trees, right? I'm looking at the tree. I've looked at it for quite a while. Trimming the trees. You know what happened to that tree? It was amputated. Mm. It wasn't trimmed. It was amputated. The tree was trying to, to, to send its branches in such a way that it would get more light. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, the, that's spirituality. Just yeah. looking at that tree and then realizing that we as human beings came in and amputated it. Yeah. And there it stands. It's still growing, but you can see scars. Yeah. And, and so that's spirituality. Uh, uh, I'm raising my little grandson now. This is another thing about, you know, life happens. Mm -hmm. How do you react to that? You know, a lot of times the things we react to in life, I think, Jacob, we have no choice. We think we do. Um, they happen and we say yes or no, just, okay. So of course I say yes, because he has no father now, right? So he says to me, we're um, going to roast marshmallows. And uh, so I got some little, you know, suckers out of the trees, good marshmallow sticks. I'm about to cut those little suckers, you know, down. In, he says to me, aren't we going to pray? Aren't we going to? Because I taught him that before, one of, the, one of the, the teachings is if you take something from Mother Earth, you give something in return. It's often tobacco or something like that. You, you make a, a gift. Hmm? Aren't yeah. we going to pray? For the suckers in the tree. I said, yes, we are. And what do we pray? Can we please take you because we want to roast marshmallows? You know, not a big thing. You know, not can we pray because, you know, can we pray yeah. because we want to roast marshmallows? <laughs> keeping it very simple, keeping it very simple, right? So the spirituality part with psychology, psychology is so afraid of it, but it shouldn't be because it's just, and that's the teaching that I've gotten from working with indigenous here, that spirituality is an everyday thing. We walk, yeah. we breathe, and we greet the sun. You, you know, we, I talk to my little guy all the time. Why is the sun out now? When does the moon say goodbye to the sun? When does mm. the sun say goodbye? You know, not to, not to kind of like make a big deal, but that's how it is. That's life there, you see. That's spirituality. Mm. And then generosity. You know, the, these are – so psychology is missing – what makes the whole thing happen. <laughs> yeah. I love hearing that story about your, your grandson. And it sounds like you're, you're raising him right. A little bit more on this idea of, you know, measurement, because it seems like one of the common refrains is the idea that actually I encountered this right when I started reading your book. I, I was uh, preparing to go on a date um, with a gentleman who believe, uh, who we started talking about uh, different ways of understanding things. And he, his thing was something very common you hear, you know, oh, I'm not really into, uh, I, I, I like to, I'm a very practical person. So everything, I like things that can be measured, you know, and then I picked up your book in the first chapter is if, if, if it can't be measured, is it real? So it was this kind of um, interesting kind of synchronous moment. Um, but this idea that spirituality is the opposite of practical, or, you know, that measurement is something that is 
that matters, you know, and that, and that if it can't be measured, then in a sense, it doesn't matter. That's sort of the implication. And so can you talk a little bit about how, because to me, you know, spirituality is incredibly practical and actually it's incredibly impractical to assume that there isn't a spiritual dimension to our lives and that it's not important. And so can you talk a little bit about that? And, and also why, why do we have, you've talked a lot about the measurement being an assumption, but where did that come from for us? Why do we, why are we obsessed with things being measured? Yeah, it's, that's a really interesting question. You know, I, I think that for me, the notion of measurement is uh, related to control. You know, we, mm. we have to feel some sense of control over things. So, I was in, in Fiji. I lived in Fiji for about three years uh, with my family. Incidentally, if you ever go anyplace, uh, different culture and so forth, take kids with you, your own or other ones, because they're the ones that break the barrier. I remember, like, um, I was learning Fijian, you know, but, of course, well, I learned them much more slower than my kids. This is my older kids. And my, my boy then, he was about five or six, came in one day talking English in a funny way. And I said, come on, just, what are you so, what are you saying? He had learned in a few short weeks to speak English with a Fijian accent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you take, you, you, you do that, you know, you take, you take your, your kids with you. Yeah. So the, the notion of uh, control, I think is really important. I had an experience in Fiji where I was interviewing a healer who became possessed. Hmm. Kind of a scary thing. I don't know if you've ever seen that, you know. Mm-hmm. And I could always, I, I knew always in the back of my mind, I could retreat to my anthropological, psychological, Western thing. This is, uh, you know, a state of possession. You know, it's like something people believe in. It may be an act. There's a lot of drama, da 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 da. But that was too easy. That's the control. That's the measurement. So I said to myself, I have no idea what's happening. But it could be that the spirit that's possessing this healer is one of the gods in Fiji. And I'm in the presence, very likely in the presence of one of the gods. That's Mm. pretty scary. That's even more scary. And we carried on the interview with that. I'm not saying that it was. All I'm saying is that by opening myself to that possibility, it was the, the richest, you know, learning experience possible. So letting go of control is the same as letting go of measurement and things happen. You know, you know, rivers, are you, are you, are you a water person? You yeah, know? I'm a, I'm a water sign. So water sign. I do okay, love, that's I do good love water. I love to swim. But you know, what rivers do is they flow right downstream. But if you look carefully, cause we have a big river in my, I live in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Mm. But it's if you look at the, at the shoreline, they have what they call eddies. So the river's flowing downstream and these eddies twirl around and what? Flow upstream. Mm. They flow upstream. So what's it, what kind of control do you have? Even, even something as predictable as that has its unpredictability. But as we all know, you know, I mean, I would say right away, if you're going to ask me, would you rather have prediction or predictability or un- I'll, I'll pick predictability because it's much makes me, you know, feel safer, easier, mm-hmm. but that's not where it's at. And so again, getting back to, you know, what my path is, my path is to try to be open as much as possible. And it's not possible all the time to be unexpected. Mm. 
obviously over the last, or maybe not obviously, but it seems um, from my perspective, and, and perhaps you agree that over the last several decades, we've seen a lot of inroads into reconciling our cultural health and medicinal assumptions with alternative medicine, which of course already says something about the normalization of our tradition when we call it alternative, but <laughs> um, but the embrace to varying degrees of indigenous perspectives, even just with kind of the role of meditation, although of, of course it's, it's adopted and appropriated in a very Western stress relief kind of way, but nonetheless, there is this sense that there's a, a kind of permeability happening in terms of the boundaries of, of our tradition and the normalization of it. But where do you think from here we have to get to? What still needs to happen? What are the, I guess, primary obstacles to having a truly um, inclusive kind of psychological uh, approach? Yeah, this is a really important question because, again, you know, going back to this thing I said about looking for something pure, you know, the, a pure teacher, a pure uh, practitioner of, the, of a certain traditional indigenous, they don't exist. I, I, have never, I, I, I haven't met one, and I doubt there's any part left in the world that is, quote, pure. It's all a mixture. Yeah. So the question then becomes, what, what is for us? Can we, can we do a Buddhist meditation? Can we do a Fijian healing ceremony? And my feeling is we do what we are or who we are. Appropriation is a very important term, but it's kind of misunderstood. Appropriation to me yeah. means taking something without giving. Yeah. You can practice another tradition, but only if there's an exchange. Mm. Uh, so appropriation is not that we're doing something from another tradition, but we're doing something from another tradition without giving back. Yeah. And the second part is, and this is something I feel really strongly about, is appropriation occurs if we're not given it properly. There are, there are prestiges for receiving teachings. Well, you know this. This is, this is your life. And this is the same with indigenous teaching. There are procedures. You can't just set up a sweat lodge. Well, you can, but it's not a sweat lodge. You can be given Just a, a sauna. <laughs> yeah, you can be given a sweat lodge, even though you're not First Nations. I, I personally don't. That's not my path. Yeah. I've been given that ceremony, but I don't practice it. But I can understand where some non-Indigenous person could practice it. It was given, but it was given ceremonially in the right way. Yeah. So this whole notion of of how and 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 also really, if you look deeply at all the traditions cultural, they all have their spiritual side. You know, it's not like spirituality is the province of a particular region or tradition. So the notion of, and, and you see, like you say, you see it all the time, but I'll tell you something else too. Joe Eagleock, he would do ceremonies for people who had healing problems, um, who were supposed to have surgery. Joe never said to them, don't go to surgery. What he said is, let's have a ceremony to prepare the ground spiritually so that the chances for success in the surgery would be improved. No good traditional healer is going to say, don't get surgery if you have cancer. Yeah. You understand? They, they may say, we have ways of dealing with it, but they won't 
ignore other traditions. It's, it's like common sense. And so the notion of uh, being rigid, either I want to do it exactly the way they did it in Burma or whatever, which is absurd because we're not there, or rejecting it because it's not. Both of those options, I think, are, are misleading. We just make the connections. But if we do it with respect, with honesty, and this is the key, eh, Jacob, for service, not for our own good. We do it for service. We learn these ceremonies to serve others better. This is a very powerful, of all the people I've worked with, eh, Jacob, that's the teaching that really, it's not for ego. You know, a lot of times, oh, I've got this, you know, like our stages of spirituality. That's not where it's at, what I've been told. Yeah. It's for service. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, it's definitely going to be a big shift, I think, to to get us to move into a surface-oriented mentality for sure. I appreciate you mentioning the things being passed on in a kind of proper way, um, ceremonially, and this, you know, is something my teacher talks a lot about as well. And um, because in a certain sense, not only is it honoring the tradition, but it also is what allows the practice or the teaching to be empowered in a particular way. It requires that sort of ritualized context. Um, and of course, this, this um, teaching, it, it, it um, conflicts a little bit with our sort of open source society where we think everything should be available to me. I just, I'm, I want a mantra. I'm going to go on, you know, the, this website and find that mantra and then practice it. And if I want to do this, I should be able to do it um, because that's an extension of my personal freedom. So how do we reconcile that um, without, uh, because I think someone in a counter argument might say, well, that's elitist. And ultimately that's kind of um, uh, uh, privileging uh, the perspective of one tradition and don't tradition, aren't traditions malleable ultimately. And we're just doing things slightly differently, blah, blah, blah. So how do we hold those, those kind of that push and pull uh, together from your perspective? Well, I think the last thing you said, Jacob, is really true. Traditions are malleable. I think it's a terrible mistake, uh, personally, you know, and what I've been taught to go down the path. I want to have a teacher who does it exactly the way it was done. Mm-hmm. Traditions evolve. And the teachers that I work with, the, the traditional indigenous teachers, are are people of of both worlds. Their traditional teaching, but very much in a contemporary setting, because the world changes, we're changing, but the core doesn't change. The core doesn't change. And the notion of getting a mantra, I mean, sure, you can get a mantra, but it doesn't mean anything. You don't get a mantra, you work to get a mantra. And if the mantra works, it's because you're working. Yeah. Uh, you can you can do a sweat lodge, but the spirits hunger. Why would the spirits come to a sweat lodge that was phony? Mm-hmm. Think of it from a think of it from the point of view of the spirits. Why waste your time? So um, yeah, you can do a sweat. You can you can get a, a a practice, but if there's no work involved to earn the practice, it's hollow. Yeah. 
in terms of freedom and, and the elitist part, Jacob, is a very important point, really important point. The people I work with primarily in all parts of the world are not people with money. They're not people with privilege. And so their ceremonies take on an extra sacred quality of needing to be respected. You cannot just grab them. Mm -hmm. And the problem, eh, Jacob, is a lot of times if you come into a, an indigenous community with a white skin and privilege, you get more respect than you deserve. And when I was living in Fiji, they were always in Fiji when you, in a communal setting, people have places where they sit. The elders sit at the top and then the younger, you know, in the middle and the bottom. And they were always asking me, even though I was only in my 40s, to come sit at the top. And I would always say, they would say, Toso Athake, move up, move up. Ah, Sadaroto, it's okay here. And I would sit in the middle because that's where I belonged in terms of my age and experience. So we have to be very careful, like, mm. to be sure that when we're given things, it's not because people are caught in a power structure where the white skin and the, and the powerful one from the West has special power. We don't. So again, um, it's not a question of elitism. It's a question of you earn every place that I've been, you know, I've been in some places where there are not a lot of white people, no white people, and there's a history of colonization so that the white skin is really represents the oppressor. And you have to go through a process of, you know, people saying, what's this guy doing? Well, I had an experience when I first moved here. Uh, I was invited to a sweat by one of my, he adopted me as his uh, younger brother. I went to the sweat and then there was a bunch of young guys who were, who were basically with their look were saying, what the, what the, you know, without cursing, is this white guy doing at our sweat? Mm -hmm. said, and I can't say, oh, well, they, they don't, they don't count because I'm a professor and they just come, come, you know, teenagers. I took it very seriously and it hurt because it was true. What's this white guy doing here? But I was there because I was invited by the person who ran the sweat. See, that's the protocol, the proper protocol, but it's never easy. And uh, so the notion of elitism is really important because we can assume that we deserve it. Like we deserve the, the coal, we deserve the, the oil, we deserve the, you know, we deserve everything, right? Mm -hmm. Everything in the world is ours, including spiritual knowledge. And, and unfortunately, Jacob, there are people in the indigenous world that will still give without getting anything in return. Because they've been, the colonization process is still powerful. But um, here in Saskatchewan, we see the, the, almost daily the racism that prevails and the racism that surrounds these indigenous teachings. So as a, as a, non-indigenous person you have to be totally respectful of that yeah and we don't deserve anything we earn whatever it is that we can get mm. so that's such an important topic and, and something that you're careful to really explore in the book and also even in in the bio as i was reading and so i want to talk a little bit more about about this because of course anybody who's listening perhaps they haven't they've already considered the fact that we're two white men talking about indigenous wisdom and um 
in, and if they haven't read your book, then they might, you know, or, and, and seen kind of the careful consideration that you make, um, perhaps they, you know, are, are, would respond in a way that's becoming increasingly popular, which is, which is to criticize anyone who is white, who is participating in a, in a tradition that is, um, um, indigenous in some way. Um, and, and a kind of more hardened version of that perspective, um, suggests that, um, we shouldn't be doing it at all. And that, you know, we need to just keep to our white traditions, whatever those happen to be. Um, so, you know, how taking all that into consideration, what, um, what, from your perspective, what are the, 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 the responsible considerations that we need to, to take in order to, again, you're already talking about it in order to be respectful, in order to honor the tradition, um, what ways do we have to reconcile ourselves to our own white privilege, our own position as, um, historical colonizers, um, while also, um, having enough nuance to understand that that these traditions are also in a certain sense for others in the sense that they're for everyone's spiritual health yeah and that's the, the last point you make is the is the key all the teachings that i've come in contact with were never offered were never discussed as the privilege of a particular group only the teachings I've gotten have always been, these teachings are for humankind. Given that, eh, I personally, and this is just my personal stance, have taken to certain positions. I don't practice any of the ceremonies I've been given. I might do it with my family, but that's all. I don't do sweat lodges. I don't do anything. I participate in them. So you have to kind of like... Um, appreciate the fact that at the basis there's not a hoarding of the teachers so that that kind of creates opportunities for misuse for appropriation for stealing for stealing mm -hmm. yeah. so that's the one thing in terms of ceremonies the second thing i've done or another thing i've done is committed myself to work as an ally i've been teaching at the first nations university now for 35 years I taught at Harvard. I taught, you know, and sometimes the students there will say to me, how could you be here? You taught at Harvard. <clears throat> well, you know something? <clears throat> Teaching at First Nations University is a whole different experience. You're working with students who come from <clears throat> typically situations that are extremely difficult in terms of poverty, in terms of racism. And you can offer something that is real food. You teach at Harvard. And most of the people you teach are just, just fine. They come from families, you know. So that's the second thing I've done is, is my, for the past 50 years, most, and when it, even when I taught at Harvard, who were the students I worked with? They were all the persons of color and so forth, as an ally. Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing, and Jacob, I'm so glad you brought this up. And, and this is why you're a good, <laughs> are you a podcaster or a good podcaster? Because the other people might slide over this. But what you're saying is, look, here we are, two white guys. What's going on? So the notion of ally becomes very important. And then what uh, Ratu Thivu, the man I worked with in Fiji, said to me, she said, you know, 
there are times when our story has to be told by our own people. He said, but there are times when our story has to be told by someone outside. And he said to me, Rusiati, that was my name. You're the one because you know what we're doing. It's your job. So the other thing, eh, Jacob, is to be given the job of talking, in my case, writing. I mean, I've written about nine books or eight books, whatever. They're all been given to me as my task. So I'm a writer. It's almost like, you know, like uh, those rich people that had scribes writing for them. <laughs> That's how I see myself, you know. I'm, I'm like a tool. I'm their tool. And when we were living in the Kalahari, we used to write notes to the government on behalf of the, of the, the Kalahari Jintwa people. So within those parameters, eh, Jacob, there, there's work to be done, again, as allies. Now, I'm connected through my family with the, with the local indigenous First Nation community. That adds another layer, but it's still not. And, and I go to all the you know, events and ceremonies, usually often the only white person there. That doesn't mean anything. I'm still a guest, an ally, hmm. and I do the best I can. The other part of it, which you don't do, you're not doing, Jacob, which is really to your credit. A lot of times there are situations where people look to me as if I'm, I know everything. And it's an easy thing to slip into, to be an expert. And I try to emphasize, I don't know very much because I'm not, I didn't grow up in poverty. I didn't grow up being beaten at residential school. And that's part of the teaching, you see. That's part of what, the teaching is not just spiritual ceremonies, it's knowing about life in that way. So I'm an, I'm an ally and that's my role. A new book I'm working on is a book that's gonna be helping to explicate the teachings of this Danny Musqua, who's my, he's my adopted spiritual father and my best friend. How's that for a <laughs> relationship? It's great. We're like father and brothers. <laughs> so there's a place, eh, Jacob? But it has to be with it has to be gentle. Mm -hmm. How I would say gentle, and yeah. always respectful, and always willing to say, "Well, maybe I shouldn't be here," as opposed to, "Hey, I belong here because I'm 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 a guy that's open to other things. I'm a guy that's fair. I believe in justice." Therefore, I'm in the sweat, aren't I? The interesting thing about the sweat, Jacob, is the good sweats, the ones I, I, no one's ever turned away unless they're drinking or, you know, drugging, eh? but no one is, is turned away. So that generosity can easily be taken advantage of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really appreciate you mentioning this about just having the discerning, um, capacity and and a principle of allyship to recognize when some spaces aren't for you and um it makes me it reminds me of the part of your book where you talk about um eth ethnographic research and and this idea you know ethnographic research meaning the researcher goes into the community and lives amongst the people and there is this kind of pretense toward objectivity where they are not meant to participate, but simply to observe. And you point out, you know, that by virtue of being there, 
you know, something has shifted. You, you cannot, there is no sort of um, way in which you can simply be a, a completely passive observer. And, and, and so, and so just kind of on this thought of, of, of the way in which our contribution or our participation or our presence shifts uh, local context, how can we develop a, the kind of discerning capacity to know when it is appropriate or isn't appropriate to be there? Like you, you're, you're suggesting that you kind of have a sense of that, but let's say some of us are still working to develop that faculty. What, wh- how can we have a better grasp of <clears throat> when, when we should be there and when we shouldn't? Oh, that's a wonderful question, Jacob. I really appreciate that. Um, and again, this is just my own personal, the way it's, it's evolved. But for me, Jacob, I'm always trying to be several levels, several steps below where I think I might be. Hmm? Mm-hmm. What, I, what I learned was um, it's never inappropriate to show respect. And that, now, for example, in Fiji, there's a way of when you enter someone's home, you, you make a presentation, a ceremonial presentation. And I remember I was visiting somebody in California from Fiji. Uh, she, he was with a, a good friend of mine. I had no idea whether he was traditional or, you know, whether he would even think that if I made that presentation, what, what's this guy doing? I'm in America now. But what I decided was it's never inappropriate to show respect. So I brought the presentation and you know something, Jacob, he was just overjoyed. He was totally American, you know, he was like, but he was overjoyed because he, he realized that I cared. So it's a two-sided thing to always put myself lower or less than I might think I am and always to show more than I might think of respect to the other. That's a, that, that's a, a way of saying to people, I'm not a big deal, and I'd like to find out more about what's going on here, and I respect it. It's, mm-hmm. it's just a very natural. And then, hey, Jacob, you may get, as I say, tasks given to you, which put you above what you thought you could do. But if it's given to you as a task, as a spiritual task, you have to do it. You see, mm-hmm. and, and that's the other, that's kind of like, what would you say? The irony of it, you know, you go in, you, you know, humility. I, I'm not talking about false humility. Yeah. It's very easy to do false humility. Oh, I'm just a, an ordinary white guy, you know. No, I mean real humility. But you sometimes are given tasks that go way beyond what you thought you could do. And if you're given the task, you have to do it. And in my case, it was writing, you know, various books that I've written. So, Dick, this has been a wonderful conversation, and I'm really um, glad that we kind of made this journey through um, unpacking kind of our own cultural context and and some of the um, ideological forces that shape our understanding of psych- psychology. Move through a bit of of the indigenous healing um, stories and and perspectives, and then ended in this place of allyship, which I think is really important. Um, but I'm curious if if there's anything about this the perspective of indigenous healing itself that you want to share or unpack a little bit for us. Um, and I guess part of the inspiration behind this question is related to 
this um, perhaps um, consideration or counter perspective that um, indigenous traditions are, there are so many of them and they must, some of them must be so different from each other. So how can we speak of um, uh, indigenous psychology as sort of something that encompasses all indigenous traditions? So what would you say to that, um, to that kind of argument and perhaps what are some of the, the, if we could say there are, what are some of the fundamental features of, of, of an indigenous psychological worldview? Yeah, that's a, that's a important question because, <clears throat> you know, from a Western point of view, we're always trying to codify. We're trying to place things in the proper order and so forth. And from a perspective of indigenous approaches to psychology, it's like, there are indigenous people all over the world. You know, every place has uh, a group of people that were there first. And that's the indigenous people of that area. So in the book that I'm, what I'm trying to do is to, is to not be um, inclusive of all traditions, but to try to, to sort of highlight some of the main um, themes that would appear in different settings with, you know, variations, of course. And um, looking at psychology, not so much as a separate kind of distinct discipline as it is in the West, but as an approach to living, which is mm -hmm. the way it is seen in most parts of the world. And the features uh, are very clear uh, with spirituality being the, the first one, that the teachings that I've received in all these settings Spirituality is the, the starting point, the end point, and the continuing point, but the emphasis on the daily ordinariness of spirituality. Uh, granted, there are moments of woe, but that's not the essence. The essence is every day the spirit infuses us in very ordinary ways. So that's very important. Another important thing is our personal experience is critical. Now, that's a very hard one because, you know, like sometimes you say to someone, tell me what your, what your story is. And then a week later, tell me what you, hey, wait a minute, you changed your story. You know something? That's okay. Because that week later, that's the story. So the second thing would be a total respect for personal experience and one's personal narrative. And this is not like an ego enhancement. It's just respecting that we're all we're all different. Eh? And uh, then also a notion of development. You know, in mainstream Western psychology, there's development is usually a hierarchical or a kind of a, a slowly upgrading thing. And then I'm not sure how old you are, Jacob, but pretty soon you're going to reach the peak and then it's all down. <laughs> but from a, I think I've hit it. Uh, indigenous point of view with the circle, all phases of life are equally important. You cannot say in a circle that one is better than the other. And the interesting thing is we go around the circle. So as an older person, you experience some of the same things you did as an infant, you see. So all phases are respected. And then in terms of the individual, you know, a lot of times we say, all oh, those people, you know, just, they just do whatever they, you know, whatever, Someone else does. You go to some indigenous setting and they're traveling in groups. I remember in Fiji with the, the, uh, <clears throat> the adolescents, they kind of moved almost like, you know, birds in a flock. They moved together. They sat down together. 
And it's so easy to dismiss that. But that's not the point. The point is there's a respect for the connection between the individual and the community. They're not enemies. They're not enemies, you see. So that's another, you know, really basic principle. Again, it's not that everybody loves the one. Oh, you're this, I'm feeling so happy. No, there are arguments, but everybody realizes that their existence is part of a whole, not not separate from. Yeah, which is such an important um, reminder, especially in a culture that's privileged is youth and you know, youthful vitality so much at the end and in a certain sense, <clears throat> you know, people who are would otherwise be our elders are are kind of being shuffled off and and you know hidden away in homes and 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 there really is, it seems to me, and I'm not sure if you agree with this, but um a complete lack of an elder culture in in the West, something that we've really lost. And the sense that there is wisdom to be garnered. And a, and a certain phase of life to be experienced um, in the later years. The, the, there's a little bit of a, of a issue with that, though, which is that with a lot of times with older people, I don't know if you've noticed this, what you hear mostly is reminiscence. And I think that's because the culture pushes old people towards that being their task. For me, Reminiscence is kind of interesting and is, you can learn from it, but I'm interested in, right now, I'm interested in you. <laughs> I'm interested after we are, we're through our, our conversation in what I'm going to do next and when I'm going to pick up my little guy. So if we put elders into that role of, tell us what it was like before the television, that's a very <laughs> limited, that's a very limited role. Yeah. But also, hey, Jacob, in many cultures I've been, there's a difference between being an old person and being an elder. And we have to kind of begin realizing that not all old people are elders. And that's okay, you know, because all old people have memory and they can provide stories of what it was. But then some of our old people are also elders. They can provide wisdom about today and the future. That's a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate you making that distinction. It also seems, and maybe this is just sort of emerging as, as conversations like this and considerations like this are emerging, but also sort of the cultural formative or formation process in which a person as they get older could become an elder. You know, there's no kind of ceremonial or ritualized context in our culture whereby something like that, well, maybe in certain um, spiritual traditions, there's something like that. Um, but it seems like that's something that is also, you know, uh, is you've, have you also observed that in, in some of these cultures that there's actually a sort of training process that's embedded in, in the culture? There is a training process, but it's nowhere near as formal as one might expect. Like here, for example, in Saskatchewan, there is no graduation ceremony for becoming an elder. There is a very kind of a flowing set of learnings and traditions and teachings. And when one becomes an elder is almost like sort of as a community opinion coalesces. At first, you might say, well, you could ask uh, uh, Harvey over there. He knows some things. <laughs> okay, He's not an elder. He knows some things. A couple of years later, you know, that Harvey, he's been doing really good work. You know, you might ask him to do the ceremony. A couple of years later, 
you know, if you're looking for an elder, you might ask Harvey. You see, so it's that kind of a, and then, hey, Jacob, there's not always agreement. Yeah. There's not always agreement. So it's a very fluid, very kind of organic process. But there is a recognition that certain criteria, knowledge, very important character, one must be a person of character, knowledge, and then service. These are the kind of elders, the, the people that become elders. And then, Jacob, the really hard part is it's hard work. Nobody should say, hey, I ought to be an elder. <laughs> it's more like, I guess I have to be an elder because that's my responsibility. It's hard work. I remember with uh, Joe Eagle, the last time I used to visit him, you know, and, and the last time we went, we always would have a sweat before we, we left, you know. And I had learned that he had a, a very serious uh, incident a week before where his heart was really giving him a problem in the sweat and he had to leave after two rounds. And I said to him, you know, um, let's not have the sweat when we go, you know. And he said to me, no, he said, this is the way we work. We'll have a sweat. So here he did four rounds. It was hard. He risked his life because that was his teaching. That was what meant being an elder. So being an elder is not something people should aspire towards. It's another hard, hard journey. Something like a yeah. calling then. It's like a calling. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, um, Dick, it's been such a pleasure. We're entering the end of our interview together. And so as we close, I wanted to just see if there's anything, you know, based on what we've talked about that you'd like to kind of revisit, or if there's something that you'd like the listeners to take away um, with regards to anything that we've talked about or uh, indigenous teachings and practices more generally. Yeah. I think, Jacob, the only thing I would like to add, and I've, I've already talked about it, but maybe this is to reemphasize, is that if there's ever an opportunity for people to be exposed to indigenous teachings, <clears throat> to, to really try to remember that the way that they're offered is always, they're always free. They, they can't be, there can't be any charge for indigenous teachings because they're from the creator. <laughs> you can't charge for something that's not yours. Even though they're given freely and they should be given freely, there's always a cost. And that cost is to use the teachings for service, not for ego enhancement or pocket enhancement. And that's very important. And then to give back, eh, Jacob, and in a tangible way, not just say I respect, but financially supporting land rights, supporting all the things that would make life better and better for the people who are nurturing these traditions. So again, never to assume it's free, meaning, oh, great, hey, it's always a cost. And the cost is to use it for service and to give back and to treat it with respect. Uh, that's the mm -hmm. only thing I would really hope to leave as a kind of a, a last, uh, a last um, idea, you know, that some people could work with. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that observation and that um, suggestion has been threaded throughout. And I think it's really important. And so I'm really happy and glad you've um, come back to it throughout our interview. So Dick, how can the listeners 
um, now that they've heard uh, you speak about all these wonderful topics. Um, of course, they can get a hold of your book, Indigenous Healing Psychology, Honoring the Wisdom of the First Peoples, I suppose on Amazon and wherever books are sold. <laughs> um, but how can students, listeners also get a hold of you if they want to reach out? Well, uh, Jacob, I'm not one of these uh, website people. I don't have a website. <clears throat> so it'll have to be through my email. And I think you can post that, or can you? It's... Uh... Or should I just yes, we certainly can it put is? it on the on the uh, um, show notes. Yes, let's yeah. mention it. Yeah, that's the best thing. It's just through the email, and I'm happy to hear from people here of their own experiences, and so we can maybe begin some chats and so forth. And so that would be the best way, I think. Okay, that's R K A T Z, R cats R K A T Z at FirstNationsUniversity.ca. FirstNationsUniversity.ca. All right. Fantastic. Our cats at FirstNationsUniversity.ca. Well, thank you so much, Dick. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you. I, it's been an honor to speak with you about um, so many interesting topics related to Indigenous healing psychology. And uh, I hope to speak with you again soon. And I t tell your listeners again, you've got a good podcast here. I mean that sincerely because I've been on a number of them. This guy, Jacob, is doing it the right way. So thank you.